to talk about the weather today, which is a fun topic for everyone. We all have opinions about it. I couldn't help but notice last night that the cloud cover was so thick and there was a little layer of frost on everything and there wasn't a star in sight. And I felt a little cheated by the weird weather we've been having, <laughs> obscuring the view of the night sky, obscuring, uh, I love winter, so robbing me of a true winter as well. But we've had a lot of rain lately uh, and I've, I've really noticed that. And, you know, there are reasons for this. You know, yes, the global climate crisis is changing our weather patterns, but Kentucky is, in general, a very wet state. It just is. And I felt it was a very apt image for the state of the world right now. Looking around and seeing here is the earth soaking wet with the heaviness of the rain and the clouds rolling in and the fog settling in as well just weighing down on everything. And you can't take a single step, you can't move throughout the world without that squish, <laughs> that sopping feeling. Mud on your shoes, you just got new shoes and they're ruined. Just that feeling of being soaking wet. So, welcome to Sunday. Let's talk about rain and happiness. <laughs> I want to tell you instead a brief story about um, two children um, named Jake and Riley. And one day it was a rainy day in the town of Lexington and Jake woke up and was looked out the window and went, oh, my goodness, look at the rain. I'm going to get wet. My hair is going to be perfectly styled and it's going to be ruined by the rain. And I'm going to have to trudge through this the puddles and the mud on my way to school. And I'm not gonna be able to play baseball after school or anything else. It's just gonna be miserable. And he sat at breakfast poking at his food and his parents went, what's wrong? And he said, it's raining. It is raining. The day is ruined. And so off he went to school, getting soaking wet, his hair being ruined, being in a bad mood all day. Now across town, not too far across town because I know Lexington has storms that like hit one neighborhood and that's it. <laughs> Never in my life <laughs> have I experienced that. But not too far, so maybe a block away. Riley woke up that same morning preparing for school and looked out the window and went, Oh, it is raining. I can't wait. I have a brand new raincoat. I got these brand new uh, rain galoshes. I can't wait to jump in every single puddle I see. I can't wait to smell the freshness of the rain hitting dust. Fun fact, that's called petrichor, if you didn't know. To smell the petrichor of the rainfall and to jump and skip all the way to school that day and to jump and skip all the way back home. And she sat down to breakfast as well and was just as jubilant as when she woke up. And her parents were going, what are you happy about? What's going on today? It's raining outside. And off she went, skipping and jumping and happy through every single puddle. Now you see where this story is. It's right on the nose. It's right there for us. How we approach the world, how we approach the world feeling completely soaked and covered in fog and cloud cover is a choice that we are making. Now there are factors in our lives that will impact that choice, but we still have opportunities to go, all right, the impressions and injustices that are weighing down on me 
are weighing down on me, but I can find a way through, right? I can find a way through not being able to find a job. I can find a way through knowing there's a math test today and I am terrible at math. I can find a way through that difficulty that is before me. So that is why we have gathered today. That is our theme for today is looking at the soaking, sodden world around us and finding a way through. Blessed be. Amen. Our reading today is from the Reverend Richard Gilbert. I rise in the morning torn between the desire to save the world or to savor it, to serve life or to enjoy it, to savor the sweet taste of my own joy or to share the bitter cup of my neighbor, to celebrate life with exuberant step or to struggle for the life of the heavy laden. What am I to do when the guilt at my own bounty clouds the sky of my vision? When the glow which lights my every day illumines the hurting world around me? To save the world or savor it? God of justice, if such there be, take from me the burden of my question. Let me praise my plenitude without limit. Let me cast my, from my eyes all troubled folk. No. You will not let me be. You will not stop my ears to the cries of the hurt and the hungry. You will not close my eyes to the sight of the afflicted. What is that you say? To save, one must serve. To savor, one must save. The one will not stand without the other. Forgive me in my preoccupation with myself, in my concern for my own life. I had forgotten. Forgive me, God of justice. Forgive me and make me whole. Today I want to talk with you about the despair of our world. But before you head for the exit behind you, <laughs> I assure you that there is a way through. But there is indeed despair in our world and there is a weight and heaviness that we have been experiencing whether it's in the larger events of our lives or the small nagging things that we have been finding day in and day out. How do we not despair is a question I've been asked more often this church year, all of 2019 and now into 2020. It is the question I've been asked most. Some of you have asked me on our question box Sunday when you get to ask any question you want anonymously of the minister during the sermon and many of you have found time to sit down with me and to ask again and again and again, trying to find a way through. It's a hard question for us to be asking, especially in this month where we have been focusing on integrity. Not just the integrity of moral uprightness and character, but integrity in the sense that we are journeying toward being whole, whole people in our lives. We explored this theme through the enacting of small rituals in our community. We were all invited to think about the things that were going to weigh us down from engaging our wholeness, the thing that we could see, whatever it was, big, small, or anything in between. How will we get to that place where we are more whole and holy in our lives? And we took that ritual together and partook as one community or we, let, we were letting go of the things that would facilitate that journey, 
or to claiming the things that would facilitate that journey for us. My life has been steeped in ritual theory for the past year, and it will be even more steeped, and I'm not going to get into all of it for you. But the Reverend Harvey Cox, a theologian, once called us hominis festivus, humans that celebrate. And I would tend to go with the other theologians who say we are homo ritualis, humans that ritualize. It is not just celebrations. It is the sad moments, the moments of despair, the moments when we recognize what is holding us back, and we take a brief moment of time, whatever that is, to ritualize it, to set that intention, and to go back into our lives. And so we did that. We let those things holding us back or those things that would help us reach wholeness, and we let them dissolve into our community, which is a community of strength while at the same time being a community that is fragile. The wholeness of this place is everything that is your life, right here and right now. It doesn't mean that we as a church community can fix everything, whatever it is that you are bringing here day after day after day, but it does mean that we can bear witness, that we can find that gateway to compassion and I would contend that bearing witness is a precious, rare resource in our world today. We also heard snippets of the life of the late American Hindu teacher Ram Das, who died back in December. His admonition to be here now, for there is only one here and one now, was the central idea for all of his teachings throughout his life. But there's one piece of his story that I left out for all of you, and I feel deeply ashamed that I did not share that with this community. Up until the moment just before his death, and I'm sure shortly after, Ram Dass on his personal home altar always had two pictures of world leaders right there to set his intentions. One was Barack Obama when he was the president of the United States, and then Donald Trump right there on Ram Dass's home altar every single day when he recited his chants, said his prayers, and set his intentions for compassion and love every single day. How many of you have a picture of our president on your home altars? <laughs> How many of you had a picture of any of our presidents on your home altars? I hear that story of Ram Das, and it is so familiar to me. Growing up in a South Side Irish family where my grandparents had pictures of old man Daly hanging on the wall. He was a saint in many ways and a demon. And beyond Ram Das, we bore witness to the life and legacy of Viola Liuzzo, the mother of five from Michigan, a Unitarian Universalist committed to justice, committed to breaking the norms expected of women in her day, and she answered the call of Dr. King to fight for civil rights and to go to Selma and Montgomery. And we learned and bore witness to her being killed by the Ku Klux Klan while being chased with Leroy Moten, a 19-year-old African-American in the passenger seat. We also bore witness to his survival, his frightful run through the cornfields after that fateful night. We did bear witness. The question from all of this, from this month, whether you've been with us or not, or you're just hearing this now, is what do we make of these rituals and stories that we have been experiencing as a community? 
And it's not just this month, it's in any month, any Sunday, any moment where we are a gathered people. What do we make of the small acts of ritual, whether or not they are grand or tiny, whatever they might be, and the bearing witness to the stories and lives that we hear? But also, what do we make of our own obstacles to wholeness, to integrity? And what wholeness can be found in the lives that are lost to us? We hear these stories of Ram Das who just died, or Viola Liozzo, or James Reeb, or Martin Luther King Jr., and we wonder. They claimed the only thing that they could do with their lives, with their values and their beliefs, and they went forward and did it in the name of justice and mercy and compassion. And their lives were lost to us. What do we make of that as well? From all of this, I return again and again to this understanding of integrity as wholeness. Instead of purely the moral uprightness that word tends to carry with it, and there's a distance in that latter definition. I suspect you can be morally upright and yet not reconciled to your life for the world around you. And I'm sure you can think of many people who in their moral uprightness ignore the plights of those around them. But wholeness looks as at despair and weariness. It looks at tragedy and fear. It looks at all the things that are weighing us down and asks, how else can we look at this? How else can we live our lives? How else can we proceed from here? And surely we have stories, the small stories, the great stories, whatever they may be. We have them, each and every one of us. We have stories that will break our hearts again and again. And stories of times when we didn't know we would make it through, but we did. But I want us to turn to the lives of two other spiritual visionaries this morning, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. In 2015, Archbishop Desmond Tutu visited the Dalai Lama at his home in Dharamsala, India, for his 80th birthday. And they were joined with a writer and editor, Douglas Abrams. And over the course of that visit, and I see people nodding, you know what's coming. Over the course of that visit, they compiled several conversations that they exchanged that the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu shared. And it became what was called the Book of Joy. And this Book of Joy that the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu compiled together with Douglas Abrams answers one central question. How do we find joy and wholeness in the face of inevitable suffering? How do we find joy and wholeness in the face of inevitable suffering? There are very few books I read as a minister these days, and I leave thinking, this is it. I could write every sermon this year on this book alone, but this was one such book. Nevertheless, we will get just a small snippet today. There are two stories that stick out the most for me from reading this book and learning from the lives of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And one is that both of them looked at events and tragedies in our world such as 9-11 and said, there is a new world possible after this. They looked at the Paris Climate Accord and this book was published before the United States left that accord and said, a different world is indeed possible. And they looked at the tragedies that continued to happen because of 9-11 or because of the climate crisis or wherever there was war and oppression and injustice and said, yes, this is but a setback and there is still another world possible. 
But I want to stop right there for just a moment. Because Unitarian Universalism, despite calling ourselves a religion of the here and now, we often get caught up in being a religion of over there and someday. We are very aspirational as a people, and our values tend to facilitate that. But what the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu mean here is that, yes, possibility is there, but we must be the ones living it, the ones making it happen, the ones putting our blood and sweat and tears into everything we imagined for this world. It is not over there and someday. It is here and beginning here. The other story from the Dalai Lama that I love is that he remembers especially March 10th, 1959, which was the height of the Tibetan uprising in China. An uprising that was met with swift crackdowns from the Chinese government and led to his exile, which lasts to this day. But he doesn't think of that day so much as he thinks of March 10th, 2008. There were demonstrations in Tibet before the Olympics in China and there was fears of, crack, of the government cracking down on the people, and his fears were confirmed. But through that violent crackdown of the Tibetan people, the Dalai Lama did something that was mind-blowing to me, at least. He did a practice called Tonglen, which in Tibetan Buddhism means that he was giving and taking. He was taking on the fear and suspicion and rage of the Tibetan people and the government officials, taking it on and feeling it so deeply for himself. And in return, he was giving them love and forgiveness. Here is an exile, someone who would be imprisoned upon returning home, practicing love and forgiveness. When did you practice such love recently? That question is an invitation to wholeness. And immediately after sharing the story, Desmond Tutu piped up with his own. He said, I get angry at God so often, Desmond Tutu being a good Anglican priest, bishop, former bishop. And he recalled the prophet Jeremiah, which he says is his absolute favorite prophet in the Hebrew scriptures of all time. Because Jeremiah said, I did not want to be a prophet. God said, yes, you will. That's how it usually goes in the Hebrew scriptures. <laughs> not me, not me. Oh, too bad, right? And God told Jeremiah, as the story goes, yes, you will be. And Jeremiah said, yes. And Jeremiah cried out to God saying, you told me you would save the people. And yet you led them to damnation and vengeance instead. That is a story Desmond Tutu remembers often in his life. I don't know what image you have of Desmond Tutu. I tend to think of him as this great spiritual beacon, just emanating love wherever he goes. But in his heart, he is crying out to God, the God that he believes in, every single day at the plights of the world, at Australia on fire, at the oppressions all across our world. Desmond Tutu has had many conversations like that in his prayer life especially so during the apartheid era in South Africa. Here is a man who witnessed so much suffering among his people, often not doing what he later knew he needed to do. He will be the first to admit that seminarians in the Anglican church in South Africa during apartheid chose to remain silent. And yet he found his voice 
He advocated nonviolent resistance. And when apartheid collapsed, instead of choosing vengeance, he chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He heard stories centered on forgiveness, real forgiveness, a forgiveness that brought about wholeness, not just for him and his people, but for the people who committed those atrocities as well. Tutu wrote of that process, it is good to recognize, speaking from our struggle against apartheid, how incredibly noble people are. You know human beings are basically good. You know that that's where we have to start, that everything else is an aberration. Anything that swerves away from that is the exception, even when now and again people can be very frustrating. He shared the story while recounting one family sharing their own story of their daughter being brutally killed in the township they lived in. And when the parents came to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, they came to forgive those who brutally murdered their daughter. They came to forgive and advocate for their amnesty, even opening a nonprofit in their township and hiring some of the people who killed their daughter. Tutu continues, people are remarkably remarkably, remarkably good and incredible in their generosity. I wonder if such a thing is possible for you. Could that be possible for you? I ask that recognizing we are not the Dalai Lama or Desmond Tutu, but we are indeed human beings. And if they can find joy and love and forgiveness in whatever life has brought to them in some way, shape, or form, even though the pain is still real and does not go away, it is available to each and every one of us as well. The world is in crisis, and we have two ways of responding. We can be a force of despair and misery. Sometimes that is a choice. Or we can be a force of reconciliation and possibility. The book concludes with 21 practices to cultivate joy and wholeness in our lives, and I do encourage you to just take a peek one day. And there's one that especially caught my attention, and it was the Dalai Lama's death meditation. It goes something like this. And if you want, you can take a moment to contemplate your mortality right here and right now. And for some of you, you can just take notes and check it out later. Right? But the Dalai Lama begins, reflect on these words. Anything that has a birth has a death, and I am no exception. And he moves on, consider the following. There are many conditions that can lead to my death, and death can never be stopped. Nothing can prevent the inevitable. Now imagine that you are on your deathbed. Ask yourself the following questions. Have I loved others? Have I brought joy and compassion to others? Has my life mattered to others? Ask yourself those questions and now imagine your funeral. Imagine your loved ones making preparations for your funeral and referring to you as the late so and so. Reflect on what people would say about you. Are you happy with what they might say? And what might you need to change now to change what they say? The Dalai Lama concludes with this resolve. 
tell yourself. Whatever arises in your mind, whatever people would say to you, whatever you would think as you sat on your deathbed, conclude with this resolve. I shall always live my life with purpose. Time never remains still, and it's up to me to use my time in the most meaningful way. I shall live in harmony with my deeper aspirations so that when my final day arrives, I will be able to leave with ease and without remorse. And the meditation ends. For those of you that briefly participated, <laughs> I wonder what came up. And I did this myself this morning, and I left that experience going, whoa, <laughs> what would people say about me? It's never fun to think about our mortality, but time does indeed march on. But from that experience, whether you experienced it just now or you'll experience it later in your life, tomorrow or in the weeks to come, where will your heart pull you? That is the central question from this meditation. Where will your heart pull you? For Ram Dass, it pulled him to compassion and love for everyone. Something I can barely fathom most days. For Viola Liuzzo, it pulled her, knowing that her life was at risk to Selma and Montgomery, to step outside the norm and to do what needed to be done. For Martin Luther King Jr., it pulled him to speak truth to injustice and to keep speaking that truth over and over and over again, though it cost him his life. For Desmond Tutu, it pulled him to forgive the oppressor, the people who brutally murdered his friends and family and his loved ones that were around him, his, all those in his community. And for the Dalai Lama, it caused him, it pulled him, again to forgiveness for those oppressing his people, for those that have exiled him. The question remains that though we may not cause great uprisings and movements of civil disobedience that will change the world radically, what are you being pulled to today? What are you being pulled to that will facilitate wholeness and happiness and joy in every single thing that you do? I would contend that that is what true joy is about. Not ponies and rainbows and sprinkles and glitter. And we all know my opinions about glitter. <laughs> Though for some of you that does bring happiness, right? But for Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, true joy is in finding that purpose. Remembering compassion always and fighting the good fight with love. And the task for all of us is to imagine that. Imagine that and do something. Blessed be. Amen. <laughs>